0: Please open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at sort of the last part of verse 10 and verse 11. And as we continue in our series on relationships reformed, I want to start by talking about something that that when we talk about relationships and we talk about community and we talk about our world, we can't really ignore the reality of identity politics. And so whether you're familiar with that term or whether you're not, the reality of identity politics is something that you face every single day. It is, a, it is part of the air that we breathe, we breathe as a society. And simply put, identity politics is the approach to politics and the approach to relationships, not primarily based on individualism or individual conviction or even political party, but based on one's group identity. And in our society, that usually is constructed along the lines of race and gender, sexuality, class, and religion. And so another way that we can identify or define identity politics is by saying that it's when you see all of life, your sense of self, your sense of meaning and purpose, and sense of right and wrong, and sense of joy and satisfaction, all those things through the lens of a group identity. Another component of identity politics in our society is that it measures nearly everything through the lens of power struggle, meaning one group is in power, another group is being oppressed. And and really, the way that we understand the dynamics of society and our culture is how we see these various groups sort of battling for power and in relationship to one another. And when we begin to see life this way, everything becomes political, Everything is sort of boiled down. Everything that you are and everything that you do, everything that you say and think, and even what you eat, even your job, your religion, even sports, everything is boiled down to this sense and this lens of privilege and power and victimhood and marginalization. And so you're either part of a privileged class or you're part of a group that is marginalized and victimized. And then, if you consider, as we have been reflecting on the past, several weeks, that in our society, self-definition and self-determination have really added fuel to the tribalism of our society. It's really added fuel to all the power grabbing. What we have is not just one or two groups, or maybe even three or four. We have group upon group upon group upon group vying for power and playing this identity politics game in our culture. And here's what we need to be honest about. We all do this. We all get caught up in this. It's not just something that the other group does or people on TV or people on social media do or people on college campuses do. Whether it is the more self-conscious, purposeful adopting of this identity politics or maybe it's the, the more reactionary, defensive version of it that is on the right, both political left and political right play at identity politics. And whether we adopt a more, the more dramatic and the more sensational and attention-grabbing identity politics that we see on TV, or maybe it's more subtle and quiet but no less damaging and destructive that plays out in sort of behind the scenes in our everyday daily lives, we're caught up in this. We get caught up in identity politics and tribalism in power grabs, and they too often shape our heart and our behavior and our relationships. Look, we want our identities and we want our desires validated, We want our group exalted and uplifted. We want our power established and our control never threatened. And what's the fruit? What is the fruit of all this identity politics? Conflict? Fractured relationships? Dysfunction? Fear? Cynicism? Suspicion? Like when we survey the landscape of humanity... What do we see? We see deep fractures threatening to tear society apart. We see the sin and idolatry of tribalism and identity politics wrecking and ruining relationships in our community. And so friends, as we've been saying each and every week, this is just another piece of evidence, another contour that shows we need rescue. We need rescue. We need rescue from the hell that we create in our own relationships and the dysfunction. And we need rescue from the judgment of God that righteously falls on our sin. And as we're going to see in Colossians 3 this morning, the good news of the gospel is there is rescue, that Christ has brought a new humanity, a humanity being renewed in his image, an image of love and goodness and righteousness and mercy and grace and service and sacrifice, something far different than the identity politics of our day. He has brought a humanity that doesn't play at tribalism and identity politics, but is unified together in Christ, who's the preeminent one. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. And as we've been sort of breaking down each of these talks, kind of following a similar pattern, here's what I want to do. I want to talk, again, about being formed by our old humanity. And, I want to be, and then I want to talk about what it means to be reformed in a new humanity. So last week... Pastor Paul highlighted in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 3 how the Apostle Paul is speaking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self that's being renewed in the image of God or more specifically in the image of Christ. And so in talking about being formed by our old humanity, I want to again return to verses 9 and 10 to emphasize the communal aspect of this. I want to just sort of turn the attention on one particular angle to to highlight how Paul actually has in view a communal aspect of being renewed. And so if we look at verse 10, the second half of verse 10, this is what Paul says of believers. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. And so this statement is further describing the new self or the new man that is mentioned earlier in verse 10. The new man, the new self is being renewed according to the image of God. And so here Paul is drawing on imagery from Genesis 1, which tells us that men and women were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve, the first man the first woman, were both created in the image of God. But it's not just true of them. It's true of all humanity. Adam and Eve, as the first man and woman, were representative of all of humanity. All people, the collective humanity, are made in the image of God. And it's the collective humanity together in some ways that is the image of God. In all of the diversity, the image of God is put forth. And so we can't just think of this in singular, I am made of the image of God. It's we are made in the image of God. Also, remember what I said at the beginning of this series. When we read the yous of Colossians 3, it's not you, me, but you, we. The imagery of verse 10 while it absolutely has significance for you as an individual, you personally, you are individually being renewed according to the image of God if you are in Christ, the imagery here is primarily collective imagery. It's drawing on the imagery of a collective group, group of people being renewed in the image of God. And so just as humanity collectively is made in the image of God, so now a group collectively is being renewed in the image of God. This also explains why in verse 11, Paul starts going to these various groups, group identities. He's saying, over and above any of these group identities, you collectively are being remade in the image of God. And this collective emphasis also informs how we read the first part of verse 9. You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. And so the word, the CSB translated self, is the Greek word for man. And so some translations actually translate it man. Self is a perfectly fine word to use here. Other places in the New Testament, this word is translated self. But we have to be careful here that in reading the word self, we don't miss the collective nature of what Paul is talking about. We need to be careful not to let the word self cause us to read this point individualistically. The use of Genesis 1 and the emphasis on collective humanity made in the image of God means that we do not read this, put on your individual new self, put on your individual new man. That would be to way, 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 way understate what Paul is saying here. Put on the new self, put on the new man is actually saying, put on a new humanity, Put on not only this individually, but put on an entire new humanity that affects the way that you live in community and live in relationships, that affects your entire human nature and us together as a community. Friends, Paul is calling us to put on a new humanity. He is pointing to the new humanity that Christ has brought because we're in desperate need of a new humanity. When we think of sin, just individualistically, we miss the bigger picture, that this is a mess that goes beyond just you and me individually, that there is an entire human problem, entire humanity problem that Paul is addressing here, Well we have a need for a new humanity. Because friends, God making man and woman in his image, when he created humanity, he did it that we would exist in loving relationship with him and one another. He created humanity in his image to be those who worship God and worship him as the glorious and supreme one and that we would love and serve and we would partner together as we cultivated this earth and spread the glory of God throughout the world. Humanity was created to flourish together. Our humanity was to reflect the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working in mutual love and unity and purpose. Do not miss this. The tribalism, the power grabs, the fracture and the dysfunction, the abuse and neglect, all of the ways that we sin against each other was not part of the original design. That is not how God created us to be as humans. Sin entered the picture. When Adam and Eve decided that rather than being obedient to God and worshiping him, rather than finding their identity and their knowledge and their meaning and purpose, their standard of good and evil, all that it means to be human, rather than finding that in God, they decided they would go their own way. They they said, God, I don't need you to define my identity. I don't need you to define meaning and purpose or good and evil or how I live my life. No, we're going to do this on our own. And in doing that... In turning from God and making their desires ultimate and putting them in the place of God, they plunge themselves and all of humanity into sin. And so now we all are born into this humanity. We're all born into this mess of dysfunction. We're born in Adam, as Romans 5 tells us. Our old man is defined by him. Sin and rebellion and corruption, guilt and shame. And we live in this don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We live in this individually. We have an old self, an old man. It is ours. We choose to indulge in sin. We're guilty of the individual sins we commit. However, there is also a sense being born in Adam, because Adam represents humanity collectively, means that our old self is also caught up in this collective sin A collective evil, a collective dynamic of dysfunction and things like Colossians 3 lists out sexual immorality and anger and greed and idolatry and slander and filthy language and lying. Those things are not just individual sins we commit, but they're part of a collective group of sins that we commit together. And look, as Paul mentions in verse 11, with the Greek and the Jew and the circumcision, the uncircumcision, the barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, All of those are contours of the ways that we divide. Contours of the ways that tribalism exists and power plays exist. He's being honest about the ways that collective sin affects us and divides us. And so each of these groups in some way reflected what we could call the identity politics of the first century. So you had the Greeks who believed that they were the culturally superior, that they were the culturally dominant group, and they were culturally superior in their eyes. They, they believed they had the superior wisdom and philosophy, art, law, culture, achievement and sophistication. They looked down on everyone else as beneath them. They were the pinnacle of society. The, the Jews, they asserted their power and their rightness based on being God's chosen people. They, they believed themselves to be racially and religiously superior. They wouldn't even eat with the Greeks, with the Gentiles, with the non jews They wouldn't. Get near the unclean and unrighteous and corrupt ways of the other people. The barbarians and Scythians, well, these were the groups that everyone loved to hate. They were seen as the armpit of humanity. They They were easy to marginalize and scorn. They talked funny, they looked funny, they dressed funny, they had poor manners, they held to strange religious beliefs, and they had crude and unsophisticated culture. They were mocked the way that we may mock in our society people that we call hillbillies, or rednecks, or white trash, or those from the ghetto. Slaves. Well, they were the lowest of the social classes. They didn't have rights, and they didn't have dignity. They were often taken advantage of. They were used and abused, mocked, ridiculed, scorned. They were economically exploited and culturally marginalized. Look, all of these groups represented divisions produced by our old humanity. And so friends, while in some ways the identity politics of our time is unique. In some ways, it's not. It's as old as sin itself. The labels may have changed, but the sin hasn't. I mean, friends, consider in our identity politics, we still we still base our identity, our meaning and purpose, our hope, our righteousness, our rightness on cultural or racial superiority, class and wealth superiority, Values and education superiority, political views and party superiority, theological camp superiority, views on masks and vaccine superiority. In our identity politics, do we not still mock? And ridicule and marginalize? Do we not still blame other groups? Do we not deem some groups unrighteous and unclean? Do we not fight and strive and even sacrifice our integrity in order that our group can maintain power? Even the, the strange calculus within modern identity politics that uses status as a victim or being part of a marginalized group as a way to grab power, this is the same root sin. And so let's be honest be honest, this is the air we breathe, that this is the culture that we live in, and our culture shapes us. And so let's be honest, let's not deflect how are you and I playing about at identity politics. I mean, you can rail about the special snowflake on TV or on social media or on the college campus, but then go home and play at identity politics in your life. How often do we do this? How often do we find our identity and our meaning and our purpose through association with a particular group? In what ways do you find and gain importance and validation and comfort and a sense of you're right, you're righteous, you're good. You have a sense of power and control through identifying with a particular group. How much physical and emotional energy do you expend caught up in the anger and the malice and the slander and the mocking and the ridiculing and the marginalizing and blaming and fighting and striving? Do you give your time and your energy to try to keep hold of power so that your group, the group that you identify with, has the power and the control, even even if it means sacrificing integrity? And here's what else we also need to be honest about. In our sin, in our old humanity, look, tribalism and identity politics and power plays, they're so appealing. Like the reason we give ourselves to this is because there's something in it that, that satisfies something in us. It, it, it satisfies us, why? Because it scratches the itch of our idolatry. It scratches the itch of our idolatry and gives us the things that our desires want. And so through identity politics, man, I can be who I want to be. I can self-define and self-determine who I am. Through identity politics, man, I can get the validation and the importance that I want and I need. I can get the sense of meaning and purpose that I desire. I can get the power and the control that I want. All these things are promised to me in identity politics. Hope and life and meaning and community are offered in the tribalism, in the power plays, in the identity politics of our day. This is why we gravitate towards them. But friends, what false and empty promises they offer. It's false and empty because they don't give us what they claim. But rather than leading us to life, they do damage and destruction. I mean, survey humanity, survey our society. Is this a society, is this a culture heading towards life and righteousness and goodness and kindness and mercy and grace? or heading in something other, some other direction. I mean, we, we question today whether or not this society is going to hold together, that we're going to see deeper and deeper fractures. Why is that? It's because of the tribalism and the politics that flow out of our idolatry. The promises offered in these things are false. They're empty. They're hopeless. And so this is why when we survey humanity if we're really honest and we really get into the sense of what is broken and what is wrong with our world and we really see how these things play out even in our own hearts, our hearts should cry out for rescue. Our hearts should cry out for something greater than the identity politics and the tribalism that we get caught up in. And so when we talk about relationships being reformed, there's sort of personal, on the ground, lived in ways and and sort of whether it be with your spouse or whether it be with family or friends or coworkers, Those things are, are real and we talk about them but we also need to sometimes talk about this at a high level of the air that we breathe and the forces that shape us that impact our daily lives and that's what we're looking at here. That, that's what's in focus here and we need rescue from that. We need redemption. Another way to put this to use the language of Colossians 3 is we need a new man. We need a new humanity and this is what Jesus Christ accomplishes. This is the good news of the gospel. What our old humanity corrupted by sin, what it wrecked and ruined, Jesus Christ has come to redeem and to reconcile and renew. We are redeemed and renewed as individuals, yes, but Christ has come to bring us into a new humanity. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. For he, meaning Jesus Christ, is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that we might, he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put to death, put put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So while there was hostility between groups, while there was conflict and dysfunction and division and mocking and marginalizing and tribalism and power plays, Christ has brought peace and reconciliation. And how does he do this? Not through better laws and policy and better politics, Uh, not through education, uh, not through a better ethical or religious system that calls us to be better versions of ourselves, but through his cross. Through his cross. You, You see, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam triumphed. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and rebellion and conflict and guilt and shame, but the second Adam brought life. See, in love, God sends Jesus Christ, the second Adam, into our world, and he lives a perfect life that Adam failed and we failed to live. In his perfect life, he brings a new humanity, one of righteousness and goodness and kindness and love and humility and sacrifice and service, a humanity expressing the image of God but he didn't just come to bring a new humanity. He doesn't just bring this new humanity. He also sets us free from the guilt and the shame and the power of our old humanity. He he takes on himself our sin. He takes on himself our shame, and on the cross, he defeats it. He puts sin to death. He puts the hostility and the tribalism and the dysfunction and the conflict to death. God nails that to the cross of Christ. And then he takes our guilt and our shame and our condemnation that we deserve upon himself so that we can be forgiven and made free. And so on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, and he breaks sin's power. And friends, in his resurrection, he puts forth the triumph of the new humanity, a triumph over sin, a triumph over evil, a triumph over tribalism, a triumph over even death, in Christ's resurrection, he declares this new humanity is what will reign throughout all eternity. The sin and death in the first Adam were great. They have wrung great destruction, but the life that is in the second Adam is even greater. Here's how Romans 5.17 beautifully puts it. If by, one's man, if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and oh, how much destruction and sin, death and sin have done. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Friends, the second Adam has done something far, 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 far greater than the first Adam. The new humanity that is offered in Christ is far, 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 far greater than our old humanity. And here is the power of the gospel. Through faith in Jesus Christ... We're united to him by the Spirit. Forgiven of our sin and made clean, reconciled to God as beloved sons and daughters. He's now our loving father. And being united to him, we're united to each other. We're reconciled to God and to one another. We have a new self, a new man. We're part of a new humanity that will be part of a new, renewed creation. Friends, our bodies, our souls, our relationships, all of creation, you know where this is headed? It's headed to full, complete, lasting renewal. That is the power of the gospel. At the deepest level, we have hope for our relationships. We have hope in the midst of a world torn apart by identity politics. We have hope to be reformed because we've been brought into a new humanity through Jesus Christ. So friends, look, in our culture, self-definition and self-determination, it's the air we breathe And so even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, we still too often let things other than our identity in Christ give us our identity. We still let those things give us a sense of meaning and purpose and righteousness and validation. We're still so good at letting our idols identify us and give us identity. But friends, in light of who Christ is, In light of what he has done, what greater identity could you ever have? In light of who Christ is and what he has done, what greater thing could ever define you? If you are in Christ, how could your old humanity and the old lines of divisions ever continue to keep defining you? This is why Paul breaks out in Colossians 3.11. This is a declaration of praise. He says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Who Christ is, what he accomplished in, is accomplishing. What he has brought us into and what he is doing to renew and reconcile this world. All of that and the greatness of that. Why would we define ourselves by anything else? Why are we still playing at identity politics? Why are we still defining ourselves by our culture and our race and our education and our class and our political parties? Why do we define ourselves by anything less than Christ? If Christ is all and he is all, how could any of these things be better or lay a greater claim to your identity than Jesus? None of these things will save us. None of these things give us a lasting hope and a lasting joy. In in Galatians 3... Paul makes a similar point when he writes this. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. Church, what if, just what if, the marker of identity that loomed the largest in our minds and in our hearts wasn't culture and race and politics or victim status, but baptism, What if the marker that that most defined us and most had prominence in our minds and our hearts and shaped the way we live was our baptism? That, That we have been marked by Christ, that we have put on Christ, we've been clothed with Christ, and he's marked us as you are mine. What if that was the thing that defined us more than anything else? What if that is what loomed most large in your heart and in your mind? Look, you can have your identity politics. Give me a community baptized into Christ, amen? And here's the power and the beauty of this, friends. If we are, when Christ is all, when the unity we have in baptism is what defines us, then we actually are set free to embrace diversity and difference, not run from them. You see, our culture loves to talk about diversity, but look at the fruits, fracture and division. It can talk about diversity and difference all at once, but it doesn't celebrate it. It isn't bringing us closer together. It's creating deeper and deeper fractures. And so friends, I know, I know, diversity is a buzzword that we hear today. And a lot of the ways that diversity is used is often used to try to smuggle in unbiblical ideas into the church But let's not let the world and the culture rob us of what is ours in Christ. We should not run from this idea of diversity and difference. Christ is all and Christ is in all, meaning he is in all who belong to him. And so Christ is in the brother or sister who is different than you culturally, different than you racially, different than you in social class or education or political party, or different in your view of masks or vaccines, or different in anything else. Christ is in all. And friends, if we start to try to flatten the distinctions and differences, we actually lose the provocative nature of the statement. This is a radical statement. If we we, we flatten this and we try to diminish difference and try to do this one-size-fits-all thing, what we say is, hey, we don't need you, Holy Spirit. We don't need Holy Spirit unity. We can do this on our own. No, but when we celebrate difference and distinction, then we understand that it is the Holy Spirit, and we trust in the Holy Spirit to make this thing work. That the unity we have is something supernatural and not based on our own efforts. And so here's the the incredible thing, that Christ is all and in all means that the white dude from America, America from, from Nebraska, can be in deep relationship and in community with a dude who's from Cameroon, or Mexico, or Ecuador, or China. It means that the highly educated elite guy from New York City can be friends and can be in intimate communion and friendship and community with a person who barely has a high school education from some small podunk town. It means that a person who ends up on a late night talk show because they can't identify Canada on a map can be friends with the foremost uh, international policy expert in the world in Christ. This is the radical unity that we have even amongst our differences. It means that the hardcore, limited government, capitalism all the way down, conservative libertarian can be in community with the social welfare welfare supporting, big business skeptical liberal. It means the person who's concerned that we all wear masks can be in deep community with the person who wants to take all the masks in the world and create a giant bonfire. This is what Christ does. This is the unity we have in Christ. You may think this is impossible, but when Christ is all, the Holy Spirit does the impossible in us. This is how the church is to be different. This is what it means to put on the new humanity. And so when we say I could never be in community with this kind of person, that's identity politics. That's identity politics. But when we say this person who is different than me in politics or culture or race or on, in different pr- pr- particular views, when I say they're my brother, they're my sister, I love them, I'll be in relationship and communion with them, I'll serve them, I'll sacrifice for them, I'll build them up in Christ, that's putting on the new man. That's putting on the new humanity. That is declaring with our lives, Christ is all. So friends, that Christ is all means we don't embrace diversity and difference in a theoretical way. In a kumbaya, that's really nice idea way. No, we actually embrace this in a lived in, upfront, in our face way. This is diversity that actually gets up close with those who are different than us. Actually loving the other. We purposefully, intentionally, sometimes messily and awkwardly love those who are different than us. The new humanity in Christ isn't threatened by the other, so we can serve one another. We're not threatened by differences because our unity is an unbreakable unity that we have in Christ. And so we're mindful of those who are different than us and we move toward them, not away from them. And so friends, here's my hope and here's my prayer for us as a church. In a world being torn apart by identity politics, may we be a countercultural community. May we be different A community of love, grace, kindness, and mercy. And when people ask what makes us different, why is there such unity, like real lived-in unity among all the diversity, we can joyfully say, because Christ is all. Amen? Let's pray.